This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical and our series on gender and Paul and the Bible and what it actually says about gender roles and this whole debate, I guess. It's been a debate for, for a while, unfortunately. And we're, we're talking about that. This is, what number is this? Is this four? Yep. Part four in our series on gender. So, Tim, we've talked about lots of different verses so far. Each episode, we're doing another passage. I think last time we did a couple passages, but each of these passages is kind of one of the prominent areas people go to, to kind of show one side or the other. This is what Paul thinks about, or this is what the Bible thinks about gender, gender roles, hierarchy, marriage role, all that kind of stuff. And so... We're looking at another one today. Tim, what are we looking at? Back in 1 Corinthians, uh, this time chapter 14, and the line, women should not speak into the churches. Oh. But uh, I'll have you read, Nate, a longer section, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. I wish, honestly, we could read all of 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, because what we're going to talk about is how... Uh, how we have to read this in the context of Paul's overall argument to see uh, how this isn't him saying what it sounds like he's saying. Right, right. So maybe you should just pause it right now and go listen to, go listen to, go read those three chapters, four chapters, and then come back. Sure. Okay. But we'll read uh, the second half of chapter 14. You didn't pause it, did you? I know you didn't. I'm looking at you. You did not pause it. I'm just kidding. All right. Um, 14 what? 26 through 40. 14, 26 through 40. Okay. This is the NIV. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Uh, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the speaker, the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak." but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Okay, so Nate, like usual, I want to know your uh, background related to this text, how you've heard it used, what you thought it meant, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know if I have like a ton on this. I kind of get it mixed up sometimes with the First Timothy 1, which I know we're going to do. The women should not teach or have authority over man. Like we're going to do that one. Uh, is that next? Yeah, that's going to be our grand finale because that's kind of the... The double whopper. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I I have I have some thoughts on that. This one I don't know. I didn't kind of the same type of thing. I guess it's it's just more evidence uh, how I've seen it used and how I've used it. I guess in when I was teaching in the church and the protecting the theology of the church or whatever. It, it, this is Paul 
again saying that men are the ones that are supposed to teach and this is further evidence that women are not supposed to teach in the church um he just says it pretty plainly pretty clearly uh let's see honestly i feel like i heard this one taught more for growing up pretty conservative um in pretty conservative churches i mean theologically conservative versus like pentecostal and assembly of god and those kind of things which i was exposed to later on in some of the nonprofit work that i did and some of the churches that i um was a part of later and planted and things like that i heard this more as like kind of a pushback against the pentecostal assembly of god crowd that was speaking in tongues and pretty uh some would say in, in my group, like over the top speaking in tongues, this was the whole like kind of rein them in. They need an interpreter or someone to like actually say what are these words meaning. And it was supposed to kind of like rein those people in. So I used, I heard it used a lot more in that sense than I did in the uh, woman teaching, speaking in the church kind of standpoint. I don't know. Yeah, I gotcha. How about you? Yeah, well, I think First Timothy 2 is where most commentarians go and as their basis for male headship, right? This is the term that gets thrown around. Um, so you and I have shared articles and uh, <laughs> kind of gotten acquainted with uh, the world of deeper complementarianism than you or I were ever in with people like Wayne Grudem and John Piper, where there's basically kind of multiple camps within the complementarian world. One is that basically women can't be pastors or elders, but they can still, you know, like potentially teach in some sort of context, right? Then there are these weird things. I actually saw this in my church where like a woman could teach if her husband was like on the stage doing it with her, right? Yeah, yes, I've seen that before. Yeah. Or then then the thing where like a woman can give a sermon, uh, but it's not called a sermon. She's said to be operating her prophetic gifting, right? Yeah. <laughs> so she does the same thing that the guy does, the male pastor. Or she's just sharing. I've heard that one too. She's just sharing with... Yeah, giving her testimony. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So women are allowed to talk. I actually saw, I actually saw this. I remember uh, the church I was a part of in Southern California before moving to San Francisco and then planting the church and that kind of stuff. I remember uh, one of the pastors that I, I talk about on the show a bit... Um, he was literally, he felt like his wife had kind of a, a gifting to teach to the church, but he was a complementarian. So he's like really caught in, and you, you know who I'm talking about, but like he was really caught in this hard space because he felt like she could teach, but he knew that like that wasn't, he didn't agree with her teaching or whatever, according to his, the, the, his doctrine and his interpretations of scripture and these verses. But so he would literally, I remember him saying one time, this is maybe 10 years ago, but he he's like, I'm going to be on the stage. I'm just going to like sit here and kind of like nod. Just hover. Well, and like, he was like nodding and like, you know, kind of, he gave the intro and he gave the conclusion and she's basically gave a sermon and he was approving of it by standing on the stage and nodding his head. And that fell under the, that was okay in this complimentarian camp. Uh, just this gross misogynistic, paternalistic hovering over the woman as the male head of authority exactly and she would look over and kind of get approval and he would nod and then they would continue and yeah it was strange oh that's my nightmare well yeah but then i mean and you know on the the deeper end of things uh it moves beyond the realm of authority in the church uh or even like you know teaching offices in the church and it goes to like the church uh, family network, whatever that uh, I came out of. Most of the churches, women couldn't even be small group leaders, mm. you know, like Bible study 
leaders. Um, that wasn't even an option. Basically anything that had any sort of like leadership, uh, function to it, women couldn't be in, but then it goes to the home. Right. And I actually think this is probably the biggest issue plaguing women in, in the world is the way that, uh, male dominance in the household is put forth as the ideal, as God's ordained plan, right? So right. we already know, I, I wish I had a hard stat on this. I don't think anybody has a hard stat, but the number of women who are abused by their husbands around the world is staggering, right? This has always been the case. Um, but there's a version of <laughs> complementarianism that basically says men are supposed to be the head over women in every sphere, right? And especially in the household. And it honestly has been used so many times. And you can talk to people who counsel victims of spousal abuse. So much of that happens in households where men think it's actually their job, their like religious duty to domineer over their wives. I actually just, <laughs> in a lecture uh, by one of the guys I had to take a class with for my master's program, somehow twisted a text, the text in Ephesians 5 that we looked at to say that the number one responsibility, the number one moral obligation of men is to be the facilitators ensuring the spiritual growth of their wives. Yeah. So that was how he read that passage comparing Christ and the church to husbands and wives was it's a man's job to uh, basically to treat your wife like a child, right? And to, to make sure that your wife is uh is like being brought up in the way of jesus okay okay i i, I have a lot to say here This isn't something that I experienced firsthand, but another one of the many sides of Nate Hansen is that I was a part of, so I was homeschooled, but I wasn't like one of the weird homeschool person that you're thinking of when you think in your head of weird homeschool. Uh, but I rubbed shoulders with that group and <laughs> oh, my garage door's open while I'm recording this and I just really hope my neighbors aren't listening. Okay. Um, okay. So I rubbed shoulders with them. Um, and, and one of the things in this group, I mean, hyper, hyper, hyper conservative. I mean, I kind of taught and you know, pretty conservative or whatever in the churches that I was planting and was a part of. Um, but this was like a whole nother level. This is a whole nother level. And I remember things like, uh, that the husbands, so the, the wives couldn't write checks. They, uh, they didn't have control of the checkbook. And so the, only the husband was able to write checks. And this came up because there were, um, this, I was a part of this, this group where like, no, Nate, you got to say what it was, Nate, it's time for confession. What club were you in? Okay. Uh, I was a part of a homeschool speech and debate club. And the, the problem there is that home, uh, speech and Wait, debate part of a, a what club, a what kind of club? Uh, it's a homeschool speech and debate club. Can you say that with pride? Like, can you say that with a little more oomph? <laughs> you sound like you're falling away from the microphone by the time you get to the word speech. <laughs> well, it's just, it's like a double whammy, right? Because speech and debate is already nerdy. Uh, and then home, you add homeschool onto that and it's it's like, I don't even know if that really computes with, with a lot of people. But Lord uh, have mercy. Anyway, so this group, yeah, amen. <laughs> so this group had, uh, there were like dues you had to pay and there's t-shirts you had to buy and all the typical type of stuff of any club. Anyways, 
the women couldn't write the checks and they actually couldn't make decisions uh, on like, are they going to be at this tournament or are they going to be at this, you know, they had to like consult the the men on, on those, on their husbands, on those questions. So anyways, I, when you, and then, oh, the other one was like, if they have a question about something that the Bible says, they have to go to their husband for the interpretation of the scripture. And so I remember the leader of this whole thing. And if I said his name, you would know his name or know someone very close to him anyways prominent prominent guy but uh would teach that the the head of the house the husband needs to basically have wayne grudem's systematic theology book so that he can this was actually said get wayne grudem's systematic theology so that when your wife comes to you you can teach her the correct theology essentially okay i need i, I need a break <laughs> <laughs> This is totally an aside, oh. and we're going down uh, a deep bunny hole, as you would call it, Nate. But if <laughs> if the idea of divine judgment uh, is is a true and valid idea, I I can't help but think that any husband who espoused Wayne Grudem's systematic theology onto their wife or any other person will be like first in line to get a slap in the face <laughs> for what in the world were you thinking? Anyway. Uh, you're right, though. I mean, in that writing checks uh, or, you know, authority to, to teach the Bible or whatever, those are just like scratching the, the tip of the iceberg, right, in terms of examples. Um, but the other thing, too, is that in other forms, this spans beyond a church and beyond the household. And it's actually interpreted... And this is the whole world of like the the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, the oh, geez, yeah. group that put out the Nashville Statement and all that. Um, is they believe and snuck into the Nashville Statement the lines about gender roles, yeah. essentially. Yeah, I mean that's the that's what they exist to do is to espouse complementarian theology that there is a a God ordained plan for humanity that men are in charge and women are to submit to male authority that that is something that is just true about humanity and therefore it's essential to the gospel that the that that idea gets espoused at the cultural level right so they think basically that people out in the world who have been uh misled by the feminist movement need to even if they're not christians are missing out basically on the the truth of male authoritarian dominance basically and where that leads is uh, is all these articles that start basically with the question of can women do dot 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 right so one of the ones that made headlines a couple months ago was uh can women teach in seminaries or then can women be police officers because that would be having authority over men in the public or can women do. And half of us are out there scratching heads like how far down some confused hole do you have to be to ever feel like you should or could ask that question in a public forum on the internet. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the other half is just like, Oh, of course that's the natural question to ask. Right. Like if we believe this, <laughs> that, that the Bible is giving us a, a religious rule for how to restrict female authority in, in the world, then you basically end up playing this wild game with figuring out where to draw that line. So Wayne Grudem has actually taken and, and created a list of basically, <laughs> in his head, like every possible 
like task or function a woman could have. Uh, I can't remember if it was like in the church in some sort of like ministry function. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm pulling this up. I because I know I've seen this before. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, let's see. I'm guessing it's gonna be this PDF. Wait, send me the link. Yeah. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Okay, so this one from Grudem. Apparently, it's back from 95. It was called, But What Should Women Do in the Church? Oh, it's actually, it's from the CBMW.org, which is the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So they published it. CBMW News, it's their it's their uh, newsletter from November 1995. Yeah, somebody's saying it's no longer on their site. So, uh, so a few people have... CBMW.org. The PDF is hosted by them. Oh, really? I, but it's not, I don't think it's linked out from their site, but I found the original. They still have it uploaded to their site. Oh, uh, gotcha. Okay. So in this thing, we'll give you guys all the links for your own devious pleasures. But it's, he literally writes out 83 possible ministry functions a woman could have. For instance, uh, Bible teaching to a women's Sunday school class, writing, writing or editing a study Bible, um, preaching the Bible at a regional meeting of churches. Okay, so he just like brainstorms. Be fascinated to like watch him in a room with a whiteboard trying to brainstorm everything a woman could do without act- actually possibly talking to a single woman in, the, in this conversation. 83 things. And the point of this list is he ranks them by authority. And then he says basically every church and every Christian needs to, to look at this list and draw a line to decide for themselves where the the biblical line should be drawn. Because he's basically saying, you know what? You're right. There's a lot of gray area. It's hard to know if women should be police officers or if it's hard to know if women should be, for instance, item number 15, choir directors. Is that allowed in this system? You're right. There's a lot of gray area here and it's hard to know where to draw the line. But so here's what we're going to do. We're going to rank it all. And then your job in leading churches is to literally take your red pen, draw a line across this list. Right between church treasurer and church secretary. <laughs> or Sunday that's school I, That's where I usually, now I don't, no, I think it's usually drawn between 19 and 20, church treasurer and church, they're not going to let them touch the money. <laughs> totally. I can't, like, Nate and I are laughing. I honestly, uh, we shouldn't be laughing. I can't imagine what it feels like to be uh, a woman who's grown up in this world yeah. where your leaders, spiritual authorities, whatever, um, actually feel that they have the right and even the obligation to begin sentences that start with what can women do and then have the nerve to claim that that is equivalent to equality, right? And 
and we touched on that before, we'll touch on it some more, um, that the idea being espoused is that a difference in power and authority and what you're allowed to do, right, a difference in opportunity doesn't necessarily equate to a difference in equality. But we all know intrinsically that's just never been true, right, which is why women fought for the right to vote. Because if you don't have a right to make decisions on behalf of your society, you aren't equal in that society, right? And so now women are still fighting for equal opportunity in jobs and equal pay to go with equal opportunity. And same goes with the civil rights movement, people of color, and other marginalized people. These are just intrinsic ideas that we all know. I can't imagine what it's like to be in a world that's, as a woman, I've been there as a man, um, as a woman, that where you're being asked to basically pretend that isn't true, right? <laughs> And uh, and then see it as somehow God's di- divine gift that's on the same level to these guys as the gospel, right? Uh, the issues of homosexuality and gender roles for people involved in the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, that is on par with the gospel and levels of importance. And uh, so basically, you're not a, a true, genuine Christian, uh if you don't follow these rules. And that's not true of everyone. A lot of people say, you know, we can agree to disagree, but what comes up, it's so much at the lay level of people that aren't uh, kind of doing serious engagement, but are just have absorbed these ideas and feel like they espouse them is they literally go and police whether or not churches or conferences or uh, Christian schools or seminaries are crossing the line in allowing women to do too much. Right. And so most churches out there, anybody who's been on like a church staff or preaching team or whatever knows that if even in somewhat egalitarian churches, if you put a woman on stage in any form uh, with a microphone, you're going to get a couple emails (laughs) of people saying, why don't you listen to the Bible? You're going against God's word. Uh, You you never should have had that woman speech speak. Why are you know, you're disobeying God. I just can't imagine. And there are stories, you can find them all over Twitter, all over the internet, of women who have been given a platform and in one church context or uh, some sort of Christian setting, right, where an egalitarian view has been accepted, right, and a woman's given the, the role of pastor or is teaching in a conference or whatever. And others that aren't even a part of that church or that setting will go after them and attack them for breaking the so-called, you know, biblical mandate. Yeah, I, I got to read I got to read a paragraph from this. Uh, so this is Grunem in this newsletter thing. Okay, the same newsletter that has the list. Uh, he says, but I must say at once that this is my personal judgment. And in fact, at one time, I was a member of a church that differed with me at that specific point. And he's talking about uh, women leading home group type things. And that had some women leading home fellowship groups. I differed with that decision, but I found that I could in good conscience continue as an active and supportive member of the church. However, I don't think that I personally could have participated in good conscience in a fellowship group in which I myself was a member and there was a woman who functioned in that local pastoral role with regard to me and my wife. And it's like, so basically he's saying like he could still go to the church, even though they were women that were fellowship group leaders or care group leaders or whatever, but he couldn't have been in one of the groups where a woman was a care group leader. Uh, and it makes me think of like that uh, Piper line when he talks about when he tries to justify basically why can um, why can he read books by women authors but not actually hear them like speaking or as a you know at an event or something where they're actually talking directly to him and his whole thing is like the book like separates some of 
that takes the personhood out of or what does he say like have you heard this before i don't think so oh geez like he says basically like there's the there's the book kind of adds like this layer between where the person's not actually it's like a mediating authority so he's not directly sitting yeah yeah yeah. it's just crazy can i say like as a general word of wisdom like look at jesus's response to uh to so many of the jewish leaders and pharisees uh and critiquing the way they had interpreted the Old Testament is like, if you find yourself having to construct an elaborate system of laws to hold your theology in place, like you probably are missing the point at some profound way. Yeah. Okay. But really quick, I've heard before, but Piper and Grudem, they're trying to do good things. They're trying to like help people and whatever. And, and you know, you're picking on them. You're like, you're, you're bringing them down when they're trying to do a bunch of like good out there. Can't you just appreciate the good? What do you say to that? Yeah, is it good? It's good if it bears good fruit. And I would say for white men who want to have a job in ministry or want to feel powerful in the church, then this produces good fruit. For everyone else in society, even for all of the women who uh, who have held to a complementarian view, uh, I would say it has not produced good fruit. And, it, and I would say it's actually antithetical to all of Paul's theology and to the gospel itself and antithetical to what it is the church is ever supposed to be. We'll get back to the text here soon. One of my favorite points that Cynthia Long Westfall makes, um, and she's coming from the position of being an established biblical scholar uh, who... I I heard her share a bit of her personal story. She didn't necessarily feel completely limited. She didn't come up in a hyper-complementarian church context. But she knows how many women out there would like to be doing more ministry, right? Whether it's teaching or pastoring or counseling, whatever. They want to be more involved. They feel like they have gifts and passions that they want to use and can't, right? And Westfall just points out What's consistent in Paul's theology, and we'll get into this in a second, in the, in the biggest letters like Romans and actually here in 1 Corinthians, is that the only metric to distinguish between any kind of person in the, the church community in terms of what they can do or should be doing is the Spirit's decision to give people gifts. And it's solely the metric of what gifts has the Spirit given each person that, that should establish what... Okay, but why does he say women should sit they shouldn't talk in the church yeah so we're gonna talk about that for a sec but before i make the point i want to point out that we say this hermeneutical principle that actually all of these guys grudem tom schreiner who we mentioned they know this principle right they're just not following it which is if we see something clearly explicitly plainly taught in paul's theology and then we come to strange passages that seem like they're saying something but it doesn't seem to fit that we, we need to aim for a cohesive, coherent theology. So one of Paul's main points is that, and we'll see it's here in 1 Corinthians, especially chapters 12 through 14, one of the whole points of this thing is that the body of Christ is this mutually dependent group of people where every single person shows up to contribute something positively to the rest of the body. And it's wrong. It's ethically wrong you're being ineffective as a Christian if you're failing to contribute the gifts that the Spirit has given you. So one of Westfall's points that I just hadn't thought of it this way, probably because I'm a man and I've always had plenty of opportunity in the church, is that 
what this complementarian theology is doing is actually prohibiting women from listening to Paul and acting as full Christians in the body of Christ in a way that if women would, were choosing or just like anybody else were choosing to uh, ignore basically the way that God has, has gifted them and to not use it for others in the world, but to kind of, you know, live their own selfish life, that they would, again, in this final judgment, be rebuked for failing to serve others. And I just think if the, if the way we've construed this is that people aren't being allowed <laughs> to use their gifts to serve the world because men who have power have interpreted Paul and then said, therefore, you women aren't allowed to do this, right? All these things that you want to do and feel feel called to do are below the line where we've drawn the, the threshold in the church, then those men, no matter what kind of good they're trying to do, to me, will be held accountable for every single woman who has not performed their ministry in the church and out in the world hmm. because of their theology. Yeah. That's like the whole idea of like teachers are held to a higher standard. And if you're saying only men can be teachers and we're going to be the ones teaching everything and we're actually going to be withholding from the church this whole other half of ideas out there that are that would be coming from women, then you are basically going to be judged a lot harsher than you would have been. Yeah, totally. Think about it. Like t- teachers are said to be held to a higher account. And I we talked about this in a past episode. I really appreciate this idea. It can sound harsh at one point or sort of strange and religious. I think it's an important idea. People who espouse ideas that end up affecting other people's lives should be more are more responsible and should be held to a higher account for those ideas than most people who are just believing what they've been taught, right? But think about it. If teachers are held to a higher account, how much higher are teachers who insist that they're the only ones allowed to be teachers going to be held? Mm-hmm. Like you have basically secured your position as first in line to receive rebuke in the the final judgment. Anyway, let's get back to the text. Yeah. Okay, so we got off on that whole uh, rabbit trail because... Uh, I basically asked you for your kind of background and how you thought about this text. But yeah. uh, separate question. I got a big background. <laughs> hey, <laughs> the fact that it uncovered your uh, homeschool speech and debate days, uh, I say it's all worth One it. One year. One year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, I want to ask you another question. I had you read, obviously, the, the two verses that are the most troubling or scary are women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, that's why we're here. But I had you read uh, some text on the beginning and and end of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, What to you, what is Paul's bigger conversation here? Like what is the context of those passages? It seems like order, right? He says it at the beginning, he says it at the end. He cares about there being order. He doesn't want people speaking out of turn or too many people speaking at one time or people speaking when it's not helping everybody. So it's like if you're just going to be like standing up and saying random words, make sure someone's there to interpret those random words because it needs to be the good of the whole group, basically. So order and then like for the good of the whole group. That's what that's what I've always gotten with this. Yeah, totally. And like if you have a study Bible, you know, like the NIV will even say above verse 26, it has a heading. It says good order in worship, right? Um, or then the heading above chapter 14, verse 1 says intelligibility in worship. So you remember the first episode we did on 1 Corinthians 11 was the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 that was dealing with 
what I would contest is an ethical issue in the way the church is arranging itself, right? Over who gets authority to decide whether women wear veils or not, who gets authority over women's bodies. Well, then the second half of chapter 11 is dealing with an ethical issue in the church and the way they're treating one another, which I think uh, gives even further credence to our interpretation of the first half of uh, chapter 11. And specifically, it's an issue related to power and privilege in the church. So do you remember it's the situation where they're uh, taking the Lord's Supper, i.e. they're having a meal together, right? Uh, But Paul says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. And he basically goes on to rebuke that the rich people show up early, have their own meal (laughs) with a bunch of wine and this extravagant thing, uh, leaving all the poor people to fend for themselves. And he's basically saying this is completely unequitable. So down in verse 33, he says, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. The point is, basically, this is another issue of those with power and privilege in the community using it to the detriment of the others, right? And he's saying, basically, just as he upheld marginalized women and gave them authority in the community, he's trying to uphold the marginalized people in this group who aren't even getting invited to the dinner. Right, that the that the whole church uh, is based around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Tim, Tim. But why does he tell women not to talk and to <laughs> sit down? Okay, so I say all that. So listen, he's he's systematically addressing issues going on with when they gather. Okay, so my point is in chapter eleven, he addresses two issues: issue of veiling or who gets to decide uh, who veils, and the issue of unjust meals, basically. And he addresses these ethical issues. And then he moves on in chapter 12 through 14 as one continuous dialogue on how the church is to understand and construe its identity as it relates to what people do and how they all function when they come together. And, And all of that to Paul is laced with giftings of the Holy Spirit, right? And so the context is, and this is when in chapter 12, you get into this whole unity of the body, right? And it's where you get into to the issue of tongues. And so what I want to say is that order and worship is a pretty good heading for these three chapters. Uh, but there's a part that I don't think people pay enough attention to, which is why Paul wants order. And he explicitly mentions several times in these chapters that it's so that if a, if a non-believing, non-Christian person joins your gathering, which is basically it's in a house around a meal, like this is much more like having, you know, your, your neighbors over for dinner, right. Than it is what we think of when we think of church. Uh, but it's to be this intentional time of Paul uses the word edification, right. Of serving one another. The whole reason, if you remember, he juxtaposes speaking in tongues with prophecy. Hmm. And he says, uh, it's better to prophesy. He says, I speak tongues more than all y'all. Uh, and I wish everyone spoke tongues. Um, but I don't care a lick about that as much as I do about prophecy, because if (laughs) the point of prophecy is that people can hear it and understand it and actually be affected by it, right? You can, you can exhort someone with some teaching or a bit of wisdom. And, uh, and if you're speaking in tongues and a stranger walks in (laughs) and doesn't understand what the heck you're talking about. And this is the other point he brings up with tongues, right? Which you already mentioned. And everyone is talking at the same time 
right? If there's this crazy disorder, people are going to think you're all a bunch of wackos and they're going to walk out on Jesus, on the church. His whole underlying point in this entire concern for order, and again, I think this is going to be really important here in a minute. Just like when you tell your weird uncle, like, not to be too weird this Thanksgiving because you're bringing a date. Is that, is that like that? <laughs> yes. And it's so bad, you eventually have to lay down a rule. Okay. <laughs> so the, the whole context is Paul wants to give them instructions to basically tell them to pull their crap together so that this thing might actually be appealing to the people that that are supposed to be joining you, right? Like Paul wants more people to become Christians, but but he's basically saying if someone were to walk into your little gathering right now, what they're going to see is you treating women like crap, treating poor people like crap, selfishly getting drunk and having a fancy dinner while the low marginalized people are still marginalized and oppressed within your community. And then the whole point of you being there, which is supposed to be to build each other up, teach each other things, share wisdom, exhort one another, worship, all that is basically just a bunch of nonsense, Mm. (laughs) right? It's just a bunch of like uh, unintelligible nonsense because, and again, there's this issue of power and division. They're fighting over which people and which gifts basically should be given granted higher status in the church. So even what they're doing, basically it's like, uh, you know, the guy who would show up to the corporate prayer meeting and like, you know, his prayer is, is not a prayer. It's like his little chance to give a sermon yep, <laughs> and like to let the whole room know how spiritual and how, you know, Christian he is. We might be thinking of the same person, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like that was just everyone around me. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I think it's kind of akin to that, where basically the point is uh, people are trying to elevate themselves in status. So power runs all the way through here. Uh, and if you don't believe me, we don't have time for it. But there's this whole section that precedes these chapters where Paul talks repeatedly about his rights and how he gives up his rights. And that word rights is just exousia. It's just power. So he talks about how he has power and he gives it up. And then he goes into all these chapters on how the church needs to stop its practices of abusing power and give up its power. So, okay, big picture. Paul wants there to be order in the church because he wants people to actually find the church a really compelling place to be. If strangers show up, if someone invites their neighbor, if someone invites you know, their fellow servant or whatever, he wants it to be an incredibly compelling uh, and appealing place. And so speaking in tongues in this kind of disorderly way would break that. Treating people terribly would break that. And I think what he's saying explicitly is that whatever he's talking about here in terms of women talking in church would also constitute that. Okay, so let's look at the context. Starting back up where we read, 26. It's about speaking in tongues, right? And then he basically institutes this rule. Hey, if there's no interpreter, basically be quiet, right? He doesn't say speaking in tongues is bad. He says everyone should speak in tongues. I wish, or not everyone should. I wish everyone could speak in tongues. I want you guys to all have all the gifts. But if there's no one to interpret it, and it's just going to be kind of 
nonsense that doesn't help anyone. Hey, be quiet, right? So he literally says, keep quiet in the church. It's the same line that he says to women down below. And then he says, hey, if you all have things you want to share, which you will, because literally he opened the line with, when we come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, right? Everything has some. Everyone's coming to contribute. Everyone, not men, everyone is assumed by Paul. They're going to bring their gifts and contribute. And he actually just finished saying that prophecy is the most important thing. Prophecy, meaning to get up, stand and exhort people in an authoritative way is what something he wants everyone to be able to do. And then he finishes this section below the thing on women by saying, therefore, and the NIV rightly translates Adelphoi as uh, a term meaning brothers and sisters, meaning uh, everyone, all, all people, men and women, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. It just, but then, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So again, he goes through here, he lays down a rule. If there's no interpreter, be quiet. It's not gonna be helpful. If multiple people have something they want to say, take turns. It's not going to be helpful if everybody's talking at the same time. Then women similarly shouldn't speak. So my point, and Westfall and others uh, would agree here, before we can even understand why Paul would say this to this church for whatever issue they were dealing with, first we have to understand that this is sandwiched in between two passages where Paul is explicitly telling women they should prophesy in the church. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And mm-hmm. to teach <laughs> that they'll get a word of instruction or a hymn, right? A song. And that is coming in the bigger context that's similar to Romans 12 and Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 of Paul saying, the whole point of gathering together as a church is for every single one of you on an equal playing field and equal opportunity community to contribute your gifts to teach, preach, prophesy, Speak in tongues, interpret tongues, all these different things, right? All these different gifts. They're never constricted. They're never limited. They're never given an exception whatsoever. There's now neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. There are no distinguishing lines uh, between how to use those gifts. So we should just have a big glaring question. If you have four chapters of Paul saying, basically, I want all of you guys to love each other better by everyone using your gifts to contribute one to the other. And by the way, hey, it's not okay, as we use this body metaphor, for all of you to be the ear and just let one of you be the mouth. That's not how a body works. The point is everyone serves an equal function, an equally valuable function within the community, not because one person is going to do all the talking and everyone else is going to sit around and listen. Or 50% of the people in the body are just ears who have to sit around and listen. Everyone is supposed to contribute. And he specifically brings up in that section on the body and different members that in the church, he uses, uh, you can use your imagination as what body, body parts he's thinking of. He says, those body parts that the, that the world considers less admirable in the church, we consider them with higher honor and dignity. It's almost as if he's alluding back to the women who he had to liberate in order to veil themselves and saying those people who, who socially, and same with the poor people who weren't even invited to the dinner, who you want to say are lesser parts of the body, in this community by nature, those people are equal members and their ability to bring some sort of authoritative teaching or word or opinion, whatever they have, to the church is is on the same par as everyone else's. Therefore, Paul can tell the entire church men and women to prophesy. So 
Okay, let's try to sift through the weeds then. What the heck is Paul talking about? First thing, let's point out, we mentioned uh, Tom Schreiner uh, in the last episode. Probably will coming up as well because he's been kind of the captain lately in evangelical complementarian theology. And he pulls two moves here that I honestly, um, they kind of shocked me. Uh, the first one is he, he makes up a definition for prophecy so that it eliminates this contradiction. And he says to me, against all of the other evidence and just common sense, that prophecy just means a momentary, random revelation from God that basically gets like, comes to you in a moment and then you just spit out. So basically it's bypassing your brain, right? He's saying prophecy isn't teaching. It's not planned. (laughs) It has nothing to do with like what a person actually thinks is true or their opinions it's, it's like basically God just uses you for this momentary like regurgitation of some sort of divine revelation. <laughs> it seems to me to go against the entire logic of Paul's thing where he's saying speaking in tongues is fine if and, and worthwhile if you're speaking in a language that someone else in the room needs to hear that language, right? But if you're not, then it has no use because the whole point is to communicate effectively to other people. <laughs> and that's why I want you to prophesy. The idea that it's just this like random zapping that you then pass forward, it's his, his way of construing this. Is if, if that's what it is, then therefore it doesn't use women's brains. And therefore we can still say women shouldn't use their brains to teach or have any sort of authoritative opinion over men. That this is basically, they're just like this empty vessel that are contributing nothing and God is just sort of using them in this like lightning flash. <laughs> wow. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one is there's this really interesting point where it says they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. Now, this is a pretty rare thing here in Paul. Um, He refers to the law quite a bit, and it usually means uh, the Torah, the Old Testament. Um, So, for instance, just in the beginning of chapter 14, verse 21, it says, in the law it is written, uh, and then he quotes this line about tongues from Isaiah. Okay? But... What Schreiner wants to say is that that Paul is actually referencing Genesis 1, 2, and 3 here. And he's pointing to, again, we talked about how uh, there's this idea that there's this divine creation mandate, right? That God created Adam and then Eve to be his, his uh, complementary submissive helper. And... Even though it's just a story and the story never says that and Paul never says that about the story and no one else in the Bible ever draws that idea from that story. Schreiner actually thinks that when Paul says, as the law says, he means that Genesis 2 is teaching that women are supposed to be in submission to men. And therefore, this idea is rooted in creation. Makes. I, I think that's crazy. <laughs> I think that's totally crazy. Where you see women submitting to men in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is in the description of the fall in Genesis three sixteen, where it talks about the terrible curse-like consequences upon women as a result of this worldwide hostility is that men are going to rule over women. So what, to me, what Genesis attributes to the fall, this perverse nature of men to abuse and domineer women he's attributing to creation exactly and that is where like wow i just want to you know put my head into a wall it's not just like oh there's room to disagree here right like these are completely opposing views like the complementarian idea that men are in charge women are supposed to submit 
to me and to many others, those that would use the term egalitarian, is the thing that is the result of the fall that Jesus died to redeem us from, mm. right? And, and like we pointed out last time, the, the hostility between Jew and Gentile has been reconciled, but it took the church a while to figure that out. The horrible dominance and hostility and violence taking place between free people or slave masters and slaves in society took a long time for us to undo. We're still undoing the consequences of it. But then we want to say, actually, basically male dominance over women, which is an, an analogy to slave masters and slaves. That's actually something God ordained in creation, even though <laughs> we first see that idea presented as one of the first curses that's going to plague women as a result of the fall. Okay, so uh, my view, uh, I think best best guess is that uh, when Paul says, as the law says, he's actually referring to Greco-Roman cultural norm, cultural expectation, and actually the explicit laws in Roman practice related to uh, male dominance and uh, the subservience, especially of non-free women, right? We talked about how one of the explicit laws was that female prostitutes and slaves were prohibited from wearing veils. There were actual cultural Roman laws uh, mandating uh, male dominance and female submission. Okay, so I think what Paul's saying is that when you guys get together, I want new people to be able to come in who aren't Christians, see what you're doing, be really compelled by it, and then hear from God by all of you contributing your gifts and prophesying and teaching one another, okay? And there are multiple ways you can screw that up so that that's not what happens. And one of the ways that people will not be compelled, especially if, if men come in, is if they see women acting in a way that is so counter to the cultural norms, uh, that is so unconventional, that they basically can't handle it and actually potentially want to have the entire community arrested uh, or executed. But, okay, I think there are two decent possibilities for what Paul is actually addressing. Uh, again, if you want more detail, uh, I think Westfall's got some of the best work out here. Uh, but it's basically two things. One is you remember that the context of church is literally just meeting in someone's house and having a meal and then sitting around and basically sharing and talking, Okay. So first possible reason why Paul has to tell the women to be quiet is because women who were the caretakers of the house, specifically there would have been one woman who was the, the wife of the head of that house, would have had a bunch of other women, either her servants or other free women who are helping her out, who are basically hosting uh, and are running back and forth between the kitchen and the rest of the household, cleaning, cooking, all that, who basically aren't really participating in the get together, right? They're sort of trying to, but uh, hosting and essentially would have been having their own social dialogue while they're doing. Okay. One option is that's what's in Paul's mind. That was an issue is basically the women who are busy doing all the work to sustain this gathering should be quiet so that those who are basically sitting around the living room can actually do the thing Paul wants to happen, which is to have people prophesy. Oh, so not addressing the people that are actually a part of the thing, people that are in the kitchen, be quiet. Possibly. Yeah, that's option one. Okay. Option two, and 
or it could it could be a combination of these options. That one's a tough one for me, but yeah, okay, let me hear the second one. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's it's a stretch, but it's possible that there are pieces of that that are here. Uh, option two is what I find uh, more likely. Women were by and large barred from any sort of teaching in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, there were situations like in the synagogue that uh, Jewish culture actually was quite subversive in this in allowing some women to participate. But for instance, uh, like Jesus and Paul both had formal education, Jewish education, right? Theological education. It'd be like going to seminary. And just like has, has been true uh, in many generations of the Western church, women were completely barred from that institution. So it's, it's highly likely that what you have is a situation where uh, a bunch of people have come together, Jews and Gentiles, and men in that room have been granted and afforded the luxury of going and being educated an Old Testament for most likely for most of their lives, if they're Jewish. Uh, if they're, they're Gentile, they actually still have opportunities to go <laughs> enjoy that teaching. The women, by and large, had, z- had none of that opportunity. Uh, and Westfall did some basically commentary on uh, what you see in uh, teaching settings, basically where you have uh, large discrepancies in social status, basically, and what you find is, is low status members who haven't ever been uh, habituated to structured classroom type settings or institutional learning or formal gatherings at all, basically don't know the rules and the norms and, uh, and are constantly interrupting with what would be basically juvenile menial questions, uh, rather, and basically they're, because they're behind, uh, they're behind in their learning, they're constantly, uh, interrupting or talking amongst themselves, uh, rather than allowing the conversation to kind of be pushed forward. And so Paul does what would be the only logical and appropriate, even basically legal uh, remedy for that situation, uh, is who are they going to learn from? They're not allowed to go to the schools, right? They're certainly not going to be allowed to go sit with someone else's husband, right? Because <laughs> that's not uh, appropriate in the culture. The only real appropriate way for them to catch up is to go sit with their own husband who's been able to go to those schools and and learn those questions. So to me, what the most compelling way to read this and where most of the evidence would point is he's basically saying like, don't interrupt, stop talking during church, right? Uh, stop talking while everyone else is participating in this thing, you're interrupting. Uh, and, and you're doing so in a way that's making this entire community look like uh, it's so breaking the, the sexist patriarchal social norms um, that this could get us all in trouble. Yeah, that doesn't make Paul look very good, in my opinion, but it doesn't seem very, uh, it's like he's more subversive in some of the other passages we've read, subverting the, the cultural norms of the, the day. And this one sounds like he's pretty cool to go along with it as long as good theology is being taught. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally hear it. But that's what I say. The next line or two lines down, he says, be eager to prophesy. So whatever this means, right? Nowhere does he say women don't prophesy. Nowhere does he say women don't teach. Nowhere does he say women don't offer authoritative opinions or instruction or songs. Nowhere does he say women don't stand up and be the center of this whole crowd, right? So whatever he's referring to in terms of talking, uh, it has nothing to do with being in a subordinate position within this community. Uh, so he, so 
in whatever way he's referencing submission and this, uh, like we said, cultural expectation to be in a position of submission, he's also saying that the way women who feel empowered in any given moment, whether because they understand what's happening or they were educated or they just have something that God has put on their heart to say, regardless of any education background, they're to say it with full confidence, full authority, they're to stand up and own that <laughs> platform uh, and no one is to, to take that away from them. Hmm. Yeah, this is, a, this is a bit of a rough one, I feel like, um, just because that seems, and I, we don't have time to like get into all of it, but like that seems like he's giving quite a bit as far as saying, yeah, women should teach, do whatever, be, but then it just seems weird to then say, but don't talk. I don't know. And I know you're saying, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like, Maybe a little bit of a contradiction. And maybe I can see why someone would redefine then what prophet saying must mean if Paul's also saying don't, they shouldn't be talking. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, I think it's strange. That's why I just go, when in doubt, if it, if it feels like there's a contradiction, take the very obvious point that Paul is making, which is that everyone in the church is fully uh, shares the same power and authority to, to teach, lead, preach, offer their opinion, all of that in the community. So if we're going to draw anything from 1 Corinthians and make it a rule or policy or uh, norm for the church today, it's that. It can't be this piece about women remaining silent. Yeah, I think that's the best That's the best argument here is like, well, he must not have meant that because that's not what he says like anywhere else with his large swaths on the church and on roles in the church and that kind of stuff. So yeah. All right, well... That's all the time we got for this week, but um, join us next time as we jump into the last passage, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, we might touch on First Peter, but First uh, Timothy two is the the crux. So uh, that'll be next time. All right, cool. Yeah, we'll pick up the series next time, continuing to talk about women, the church, roles in the church, and like I've said, I said it last episode. We think this is so incredibly important. This is more important than just something we're going to like grab beers over and, and chat. No, you disagree and we disagree on this and we see things differently because so many people are being hurt by this, mostly women, but men included because the whole church is suffering because we're only hearing and we're only being led by and we're only being influenced and we're only hearing biblical interpretations from half of the body of Christ. And you could say like, well, they're, they're able to like give input and um, be active members of the church, be deacons or whatever, deaconesses. But I'm saying there's something completely different here we're talking about when women are fully included in helping us determine what the Bible even is saying when you look back at like the shaping of the ESV or, or something like that. And leading churches and, and pastoring people um, pastoring men <laughs> like we need this in the church and we're saying enough is enough and we're hoping to give the bible back to you and show that paul was never meaning for this to be done with what he was saying and uh so anyways come on back and we've got more to go share an episode with a friend and we will see you next time peace
Well, howdy. If you're still listening at this point, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your story and how this show has impacted you or questions you have or just really anything about your journey in the church and with theology and with doctrine and and all this kind of stuff, things you've felt and, and experienced. We would love to hear those. We'd be so honored to get to read those and we read every single email that comes into us you can email us contact at almostheretical.com or just head over to almostheretical.com and you can find ways to connect with us there all right look forward to hearing from you 